0: So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4. This morning, we're looking at a single text, and in this, we're covering the subject of prayer. Uh, We're just doing a single message this morning, and we're looking at what happens when the church prays together. And really, to give you some, some context to kind of help us, what I've noticed is that family dynamic often plays a role in how we go about our relationship with God. And not always, but really what, what I mean by that is that if mom and dad didn't pray ever, you probably don't. And this isn't always the case, but if this is the case for you, then prayer is probably more of an occasional thing. Uh, something that you, you do from time to time, but you really, you call in the big guns when there are deep prayer needs. You call in your your pastor, you call the the, the prayer intercessors, and and really it's those who, if you called right now, they're probably praying, right? Those are the ones who we typically call upon if we are not usually praying. So you call these people to really get at the heart of the issues, to get after God's will and, and healing and so on. And so what I believe to be true is that prayer is something for all of us, for the church together, the body of Christ to continually do. It's not just for pastors. It's not just those who would be intercessors. It's for all. But here's what I also know to be true. Prayer is something that if it is not displayed, it is often not duplicated. If it's not displayed for you, it's often not duplicated duplicated. And so we see in Jesus's ministry how he displayed it to his disciples. Literally in Luke 11, you see where we get the Lord's prayer. The disciples are asking, Lord, how should we pray? How should we go about this? In Matthew 14, we see that Jesus prays alone. In fact, the Bible literally says he went to a a desolate place, a very quiet, lonely kind of place, and he prayed alone. And then we also see Jesus praying a very high priestly prayer where he prays for the disciples. He prays for you and I before he goes to the cross. And so, church, we're, we're called to pray. And I believe that this is a mark of a Christ-centered church, that this is so important because, really, we are in a time of opposition. I, I mean, really, this is nothing new. If we look back in history, since Jesus came to earth, since he died for our sin, was raised by the Father, and then left ascended back into heaven and leaving the Holy Spirit, we have always been, since then, in a time of opposition. And really, in the midst of this, we have an incredible message, the gospel. This incredible message given by an incredible God, and we're called to be bold and to share this message, that you and I have been reconciled to the Father, through grace alone, by the work of Christ alone. So that when we have faith alone in Christ, we're given a new identity in Christ where we're no longer seen as sinner. We're no longer seen as loser or lost. We are a Christian. And what the Bible says is that we are a child of God forgiven. And so now also we have this incredible message to also say, listen, when you come into this faith, you also come into a family. That we're part of a body of believers who have made this confession of faith, working together to live out and share this gospel message. But here's what's true. In doing so, something big comes in. Something difficult comes in that calls for specific response. Opposition comes in and suffering happens. So it really causes us to ask what what do we do when we face opposition? What do we do when we face opposition? Because Christians are not big fans of opposition. We are not fans of suffering or persecution. We don't like that. We're not excited about that. We don't want to hear that message. We don't want to go through that series. In fact, some have gone as far as to share the gospel in a way where they leave that part out. I mean, how many of you were told this, that Jesus loves you? He has a wonderful plan for your life. If you confess your sin to Jesus, he will forgive you, and then he'll take you to heaven to live with him forever. So then would you like to be a Christian? See, for many, it was presented in this way. And what they didn't tell you was the middle. The time between give your life to Jesus and go to heaven to be with Jesus. And that's the part we call life that often is left out. And in that part, they failed to tell you that some people will hate you. That some people will say horrible things about you. It may cost you a job. It may cost you your relationships where people will turn their back on you. In some cases, it's going to be very difficult and so they've left this part, part out because they knew if, if they spoke to the difficulty of life, they knew you wouldn't sign up. And so for those who do sign up, it makes it even more difficult. Because then they, they get disappointed with God. And then they get frustrated with God because life gets hard. And then some people even walk away from God. And they just say, Well, I signed up for a blessing. And what I got was persecution. I didn't sign up for this. And so here you have a bunch of people filled with confusion and disappointment, where you get difficult life when they really thought they had easy Jesus life. And so, church, if for some of you you have been told that was the whole gospel, they were wrong. There is difficulty you are going to face opposition in your Christian life. But it isn't because God is disappointed in you or you have done wrong in his eyes. It is because it will happen when we choose to live for Christ. Persecution is just going to happen. In fact, Paul told this to Timothy when writing to him in 2 Timothy 3.13. He says, all. Now notice how Paul doesn't say some. He says all. All. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So what do we do when we face opposition? See, in our text this morning, we see what the church does as they are facing opposition. The church prays. We see opposition in the midst of the Holy Spirit doing incredible things all throughout the book of Acts and in and through the church but the church doesn't see this as a shock. They're not shocked by persecution. In fact, they actually see it as evidence of a godly life in Christ Jesus. And so this is what we're looking at this morning. What do we do with opposition? And how can we continue to speak boldly of the word of God and of the gospel in the midst of this? And so what we're gonna look at this morning in our text, what we're gonna unpack and really apply as a church is that we need to seek the Lord together in prayer that despite opposition, we would speak the word boldly where we would be moved and filled by the Spirit. And so we're going to read in Acts chapter 4 starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, as we go to look at this text, what I want to to give you first off is some context of verse 23. As Peter and John are are coming to their friends, it says. Some things have happened in in earlier chapters. In fact, in chapter 3 and 4, some incredible ministry has happened. In the beginning of chapter 3, we see that Jesus has healed a a lame man. And and not in the sense of a, a lame man, as we would use the terminology, but a crippled man who was crippled for all of his life. And so there's incredible healing And then in the second part of chapter three, we see that Peter proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. And then we see Peter and John before the council in chapter four, that they're being persecuted. They're facing opposition. And in the midst of this, the council's not sure what to do with them because here you have healing that's really good. You have a serving that's really good, but then you have the speaking of the word that was really controversial. And so the council's not happy about this. And so then we see in the end of also this piece that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, continues to speak with boldness. And so this is the setup that's happening. And now Peter and John are going back, it says, to their friends. So now as we get into our text, starting in verse 23, what's so amazing and what's so encouraging that I hope we do not miss is that in verse 23, it says they went to their friends. So verse 23 doesn't say that they're going to the apostles. They're going to their friends. And this is incredible for you and I because this is what Christians do when they face opposition. They go to their Christian friends and they pray that in the midst of opposition, they go before the Lord, they press into God together in prayer. And so for us to understand in this, this is a powerful prayer. It isn't a a silent request or some small mantra. It's a deep and heartfelt pleading of true believers for God to continue to work in and through them. And so in verses 24 through Twenty-eight. we see the beginning of their prayer. And first we see as they come before God, they spoke with an intentional heart posture when they said, Sovereign Lord. Now, when we, when we speak of the sovereignty of God, it's that he rules the universe, that he alone is in control. And then we see that they don't just say that he's sovereign, but that he's Sovereign Lord. And this word is not the usual word for Lord in the New Testament. It's a Greek word that was used as someone who was a slave owner or ruler over who had great power that was unquestionable. And so when the church prays sovereign Lord, they pray with power and confidence because they know that God is in control, that he alone is in control over all things, that he alone is sovereign and he alone is Lord. And see, when we pray, we often forget, I think, just who it is we pray to. I think we all have these different ideas and unfortunately, sometimes we have this tendency to go before the Lord in the context of how we maybe see our earthly father, an earthly father figure, rather than truly who the God of the Bible is. And so, church, let me remind you, it is that we are praying to the God of the universe who made all things and has authority over all things. I mean, for us, I think sometimes we just get into the motion where we forget that every breath we breathe is under the glory of a sovereign God, is under the submission of a sovereign God. And so let me ask you, what do your prayers and even your postures say about your obedience towards God, and especially your knowledge of who He is? When you come before God, do you know who you are praying to? Because see, I I believe that often we, we have small and sometimes empty prayers or even small and non-existent prayer lives because we don't know who we are praying to. So then, of course, we don't know how to pray or what to pray. And so I would ask you, do you understand that God is sovereign over all? That for those of you that are Christians, he is Lord over your life. You see, in the text, the church, as they prayed, looked to God as their ultimate authority. They knew God. And in fact, they knew God as creator, who is in control. He's in control over all things, that he is God, as the text says, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So really, I would would argue almost, if God is not the ultimate authority in your life, then are you really praying to the God of the Bible? I mean, at least you're not doing so in submission. Because if you do not personally know him, you're not truly seeking him. So I love what Spurgeon said when he spoke about the sovereignty of God. He said, men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. So let me tell you this, church. Those submitted to God see him on his throne because they have surrendered that they are not. And so for the Christian and for the church in this text, this is the prayer that is being prayed, that God alone is on the throne, that he is sovereign Lord. And we see then in verse 25 that the believers look further to God by looking to his word. The the prayer being prayed, quote Psalm 2, And from Psalm 2, they understand that they should expect this sort of opposition and not be troubled because God was in control of all things. That even as the Holy Spirit worked through David in the Psalms, they saw the hand of God at work. See, church, when we pray, we need to see, and we even have the ability to see, our circumstances and our opposition in light of God's word. I've shared with you before, and even this morning in worship, how I read the psalm every year that is my age. And so this this year I'm on Psalm 29. And let me tell you the truth of God's word that is not just in the context of my my, uh, verse that I focus on that year. God continues to speak through his word. God continues to speak through his word. I can spend a year in a text and never leave it, never need to leave it, never want to leave it because I have learned all of its truths and all of its power. God continues to speak through his word. So church, let me challenge you. Know the word, love the word, pray the word, share the word, that we would be a church that is so devoted to the word of God that it just oozes into every area of our life that there isn't an opportunity after service. There isn't an opportunity in every area of our lives where we wouldn't seek to bring the word of God into that space. Know the word, love the word, pray the word. See, we see from this text, this beautiful prayer as the word is being brought into it. And we see this beautiful connection between verse 25 and 26 and verse 27 and 28. That the church is acknowledging that in the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit spoke through David in the Psalms, he was writing of what was to come in Jesus. That people would reject him. That the, that the world would in fact hate him. And that for those who put their life in Christ, they would face persecution. They would face Opposition. And really what we need to understand, this was all by the will of our sovereign Lord who is seated on the throne. This was all by the will of our sovereign Lord who is seated on the throne. And so they prayed this in verse 28 when they said that all of this was done to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, it's strange to some, and in my study, strange to quite a few, that the doctrine of predestination is mentioned here. But I believe it's, it's no mistake. I believe it's no small piece. It's in fact a beautiful explanation of the sovereignty of God. That man may be in rebellion against the Most High, but he is still ultimately the slave of God's predestination and his divine plan. That you can see God as not being on the throne, but that does not remove him from his throne. And so they're saying in the midst of these threats, those who do not know you like we know you, we know that you're still in control over all of this. That as man sins with his free will, even to the extremes and the the lengths of wreckage, still even in this, God is in control. That where he rules and he governs, he does so even over that sinner to his own good pleasure. So this is what the church is praying. As David says in the Psalms, as we see in the the coming and the dying and the resurrecting of our Savior Jesus, that even now in the persecution and opposition we face, God is in control and he has a plan. God is in control, and he has a plan. So see, the church isn't praying for God to wipe away persecution or opposition. They're praying that God would make them bold so they could continue to speak. And so we see in verses 29 through 30, it says, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So here in this verse, they ask for more boldness. They ask for more power. They ask for more trouble. So here's what we need to understand. A life transformed by Jesus is not Ashamed, for, uh, is not ashamed of the gospel, but can be shamed for the gospel. So a life transformed, if you put your faith in Christ and choose to live for Christ, it is that you are saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but I'm willing to be shamed for the gospel. See, in verse 29, they prayed, look upon their threats. God, look at what is before us. This is the context of the church being shamed for the gospel. There are real threats that they are facing. And see, I think for most of us, we would likely see this as a reason to get out, as a reason to step back, as a reason to rework our our method. So this is why I think some have opted out of speaking boldly. We just kind of detach ourselves and almost say, Well, there's a specific group of believers that God is gifted to speak. So I'm just going to serve. Because we don't get in trouble for serving, but we will get in trouble for speaking. There's no controversy around serving, there's all controversy around speaking. I mean, if we just go out and feed the hungry, no problem. If we love the hurting, no problem. If we give generously to support single moms and kids who don't have a dad, there's no problem. If we volunteer in the public schools to be part of the community and love the kids, there's no problem. If we collect coats for the, for the cold, if we uh, select food for those that are hungry, not a problem. But when we begin to speak and say, Jesus loves us and he told us, to tell you the great news of how he loves you. Well, then that's a problem. This is when we've spoken of what we've said. So a lot of Christians like to turn Christianity into nothing but serving and to get rid of speaking altogether because it's speaking that really causes suffering. And so really how I would view this is almost like two tires on a bike This is why Christianity sometimes is so difficult for so many. It's like you're trying to pedal down the road with one tire on the back. It's going to be difficult for you because you're not doing what Jesus instructed you to do. And it's all at the desire of removing yourself from opposition. But what we need to understand is that Jesus served and Jesus spoke. And so what we know to be true of that is that Jesus' people are to serve and are to speak. And really to do so boldly, not cowardly. So church, for you and I, despite opposition, despite suffering that may come to us, we need to pray for boldness. We see in verse 29 that they prayed that God would grant His servants to continue to speak and to speak his word with all boldness. And so, in this, this request is not God, do great things for us, do great things that we would look awesome. This is a request of God, would you do what brings you most glory? Would you get the glory for filling us with boldness? So they are servants asking their master to move in and through them. In fact, look at the common language between David and Jesus and the church in this text. In verse 25, when quoting Psalm two, 2, they prayed, David, your servant. In verse 27, when speaking of Jesus and the persecution that God had predestined for his own good plan, they prayed, your holy servant, Jesus. And now in verse 29, they have prayed that God would grant his servants to speak boldly. See, this is the prayer of a church that longs to serve the Lord and speak and share the gospel. That they're boldly praying, as we face opposition, it's to your glory. As we face threats, give us boldness. As we speak, let us speak your word. So let me remind you, Being bold is not about how confident you are in yourself. It's not about how well you speak or how well you are acting in a bold manner. It's about the sovereign Lord of all things speaking in and through you for his glory. So church, let me challenge us today with this, that we should be a praying church. We should be a praying church that's, that seeks to speak the word boldly for his glory. That we would go after the presence of God. That we would ask for boldness and that we would ask for Jesus to be everything. And so look at the incredible follow-up of how much they're seeking the glory of God. In verse 30, it says, while he stretches out his hand to heal, And signs and wonders are performed through the name of his holy servant. See, what I love about this verse is that too often there are those who would use the power of God to their own glory. And this prayer absolutely squashes that attempt. So there's no name it and claim it here. There is no telling God how to heal or when to heal. He says signs and wonders are performed through the name of of his holy servant, Jesus. The prayer is continually, continually pointing towards the glory of God. So here, as they're saying, while you stretch out your hand, they're using an Old Testament phrase that's referring to God's strength and his ability to accomplish his purposes. That this is God's doing according to his will will to reveal himself for his glory so then look at how they conclude the prayer that it's all about jesus the resolve is jesus so we look not to ourselves but to jesus and that despite opposition that we would be able to speak the word boldly because of christ in us See, this is sometimes why I believe that we struggle in our prayer. We're too much focused on ourselves. We're not coming before the sovereign Lord focused on Him. But look at how the church resolves this, that they're resolving it focused on Christ. And then we come to the response to the request. We see in verse 31 how God answers their prayer. It says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Can you imagine this experience? I mean, that would be quite a prayer time, would it not? See, the Old Testament frequently describes uh, shaking or earthquakes as a sign of God's presence. And let me ask you, what happens when a place shakes that you are in? It moves you. So this is the purpose of God's presence in this space where the believers are gathered. It is his presence filling the space as he fills them with his Spirit. So let me just give us some foundation to understand this today. That when God's people receive the Holy Spirit, They do so at conversion. Uh, Ephesians calls it being sealed with the Spirit. So you're sealed with the Spirit once you receive salvation. And then there are many fillings that happen throughout the course of your life. And the filling of the Holy Spirit is to empower you with boldness to be on mission with Jesus. But what can be difficult for us is, is that we don't always see this type of movement today. And here's what I believe to be true. I believe that the Spirit moves in mighty and powerful ways, but not always like this. And unfortunately, because we don't always see, what we're seeing here in Acts 4 is that sometimes we just ignore the movement of the Spirit. We do not seek the movement of the Spirit because we think that He only moves in this one way but he does move. Consider the times when you hear or have heard the preaching of the word and you feel a conviction to grow and to change. There is nothing clever in my words that has led you there. That is by the Spirit. Consider when you are asked in fellowship with other believers, how is your time with Jesus going? Do you feel a conviction because of the lack thereof? The Spirit is still moving in that. Consider the times when you are before the Lord and he is speaking to you and he is calling you to do something or he is calling you to say something. Church, even in these, these are ways in which the Spirit is still working on us. That even we would be shaken from complacency and cowardice towards being moved and filled by the Spirit. So what we need to understand is that the Spirit at times still does not move in us where we are bitter or pursuing a life of sin or unrepentant. When we become Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit. But I also believe there are ways in which when we grieve Him, when we grieve the Spirit, I believe there are times where He chooses not to move in us and fill us more. For an example of this, several years back, I was planning to teach through Ephesians 4 to a group of students. And I was reading through the text and I came to verse 30 and and read, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then I stopped for a moment at that verse and I really prayed and asked God, please help me teach this. Would you convict me where I may have grieved the Holy Spirit? And then I continued on and I read verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And in that moment the holy S- the holy spirit revealed to me an area of bitterness in my life. That in fact I was bitter against my father because he had battled alcoholism and it was destroying our family. It was hurting our family and I was downright bitter. And I just remember falling on my face, weeping, just asking the Holy Spirit, forgive me for how I have grieved you with my deep bitterness. And as I got up, I continued to pray, I continued to prepare. I called my father and I met with him and I said, Will you forgive me? Here's what I'm reading, here's what I'm studying, here's what I'm going to be preaching will you forgive me? And through that, there was in that time a movement of the Spirit that I saw that I did not see before. In fact, through sharing of that text in Ephesians 4 and sharing of my conviction that I was grieving the Holy Spirit, in fact, in that context, we saw those come to faith in Christ. So here's what I will tell you, church. There are, there are times, I believe, that the Spirit is not moving in and through us because we are not pursuing the Father in repentance, in relationship, in genuine faith. And so let me ask you, as I asked you before, what do your prayers and your postures say about your obedience towards God? I mean, let me challenge us even again, church, that we should be a praying church that seeks to speak the word boldly. That we would go after the presence of God. That we would repent and be moved. That we would ask for boldness. That we would ask for Jesus to be everything. Look at the response. And the result in verse 31, as the believers are going before the Lord in prayer, filled with the Spirit then, it says at the end, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This boldness is necessary for us today. Because as I said at the beginning, we have an incredible message given by an incredible God And we are called to be bold and to share this message. And remember, church, like I said, this is not something we are doing alone. That we do so by the power of the Holy Spirit through the working of a sovereign God. And also, this is something we do together. And so what I would say in in our time as we come to a close is that for some of us, if you've come in this morning and you have not placed your faith in Christ, what I, would, what I would almost challenge you in is, is it that you want to be in control? Is it that in your life you're wanting to be sovereign? Because what this text clearly tells us is that ultimately you are not. God is always in control. And maybe secondly, it's because as you've heard this message, you know that you're going to suffer and you don't want to suffer. But let me close our time by encouraging us with this truth. And also not just to the non-believer, but to the believer. For us as a church, that as Jesus has suffered for you on the cross, he will also suffer with you. That as you face suffering and opposition, what we know to be true of the word is that you will learn to love him more, become like him more, and that suffering in part is part of God's good and sovereign plan. So church, let me encourage us to put our trust continually in Christ. In fact, for the non-believer, that you would turn from your sin and that you would trust in him alone. So this then for us is why we seek him in prayer, why we go before the Lord asking him for boldness, that despite opposition, we would speak the word boldly and be moved and filled by the Spirit. Where we would boldly share with those that even speak threats and those that don't yet know Christ. And so, church, this morning, as we come to a close, let me ask you this question for us to consider this week together Are we praying for boldness to speak the Word of God? Are we praying for boldness to speak the Word of God? Let's pray.